I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. One evening after the family meal, Priscilla made sure that all of the men were out of the house before closing the door and walking to take McSophie's hand. She led her into a back room. She told her that they had to do something together and it was going to be hard, but it was going to be the best thing for her. McSophie didn't understand, but, on her mother's command, took off her top and lay down on her back. She knew this was for her own good, and that her mother was only trying to protect her, but she struggled to stifle her screams because of the intense pain. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 12, Mick Sophie. Cameroon is one of the most urban countries in Western Africa. Its hot and humid climate helps to support the dense forests which are home to monkeys, chimpanzees and mandrills. The national park in the north is home to elephants, giraffes and antelope. Over two-fifths of the population of Cameroon are under 15 years old, and more than two-thirds are under 30. Cameroon has a low unemployment rate of just 4.24%. The UK had an unemployment rate of 5.5% in the same period, and, in recent years, its economy has made significant movement towards success, reducing its debt from 60% to around 10%. Despite this, 48% of the population still live under the poverty line, and the ingrained cultural norms mean that the percentage of male students is much higher than female students the older they get. This is kind of where our story starts. It's about a woman who grew up in Douala, a coastal city in southwest Cameroon. The women here are excluded from much of the work and privileges that the men are able to have. Women are expected to perform all domestic duties and they are expected to live for their family exclusively. This often means arranged marriages, 
that result in young pregnancies. This may explain why girls tend not to attend school for as long as their male counterpart. Unfortunately, the healthcare system in Cameroon is pretty awful. Hospitals and healthcare professionals are few and far between, and often, the treatment needed is not even available, no matter how far you are prepared to travel within the country. This affects quality of life, and therefore also overall life expectancy, which compared to the UK is low. UK males are expected to live around 79.9 years, compared to 57 years in Cameroon, and 83.6 years for females, compared to 59 years for females in Cameroon. The country has one of the highest literacy rates on the continent, but its economic progress has been hampered by corruption and decades of authoritarian rule. Priscilla de Saic was just 15 years old when she gave birth to her daughter, Mick Sophie. They shared a special bond, and Mick Sophie looked up to her mother for everything. Priscilla taught her how to read and write, and how to speak pidgin English, a mixture of her village's local language combined with some elements of English. This allowed her to communicate with many other people from the surrounding communities, most of whom spoke a mixture of one or more of the 250 languages common in Cameroon. Thick mud houses crowned in thatch were dotted through the small village that she lived in. Although Priscilla and Mick Sophie actually lived in a slightly more modern house, made from pastel-coloured concrete bricks and corrugated iron roofs. The village itself wasn't home to many people, but the local marketplace wasn't too far away. It housed a daily market that would see locals flock to buy their weekly goods. The market itself was divided into separate areas for, quote, women's products, such as produce and palm oil, and men's products, such as livestock and bushmeat. Within the nearby towns, Mick Sophie would go to the grocery stores and witnessed a significant increase in restaurants and bars. She imagined she may work there when she was older, rather than growing crops as she'd seen her mother and grandmother do since she was little. Privacy wasn't something that Mick Sophie was used to, Her life and the lives of her family and friends were very public. The notion of privacy was forbidden because of the strong belief in evil and supernatural or magical powers. This made way for a strong connection to people and from birth, high value being placed on the company of others. This was especially important for Mick Sophie and her family at mealtimes. Priscilla taught Mick Sophie to cook from a young age. She was always taught to share cooked food as a way to solidify relationships, and now it was her time to learn. Priscilla told her that sharing food and drink would help to show hospitality and trust, something fiercely important to the family. 
Cooking usually started by making some kind of palm oil or peanut sauce or stew, which was then added to a cooked cereal or root staple. Unlike her own childhood, rice and pasta were more popular now, so Priscilla was excited to teach her daughter how to properly cook with them. She beamed when Mick Sophie suggested adding a hot pepper and some ginger to her first meal. She was taught that the women were responsible for feeding the family. Generally, Priscilla would cook the meals before the men and sometimes guests would eat as much as they pleased before the women and any other children at home would follow suit. Men came first, inside and out of the home. This was common practice, and it was expected that McSophie would obey any instructions given by her father. From that point onward, McSophie would use cooking as an escape from everyday troubles, of which there were a lot. And as she reached puberty, things were about to get much worse. From a young age, Mick Sophie knew that she wouldn't be able to do the same things as the men in her life. When it came to anything systematic, land tenure, marriage, divorce, or any kind of social organisations, she knew she would always have to answer to the men. But she had also seen how her mother had taken control in the house, in a much more informal way, and she intended to do the same. She also knew of university professors and government figures who were women, and the recent progression in such areas gave her hope and inspiration. Each day she attended school, she and her friends would sit tightly packed on small wooden benches, listening intently to the teacher's every word. Even when her friends were playing up, she would try hard to concentrate on what was being said. Although primary school attendance was high amongst her and her peers, she knew that it might be necessary to stay home to help her mother work rather than attend secondary school. By the time Mick Sophie was just nine years old, she had started puberty. Her body was changing and her mother noticed that she'd started to develop breasts. One evening after the family meal, Priscilla made sure that all of the men were out of the house before closing the door and walking to take Mick Sophie's hand. She led her into a back room. She told her that they had to do something together and it was going to be hard, but it was going to be the best thing for her. Mick Sophie didn't understand, but on her mother's command, took off her top and lay down on her back. Priscilla told Mick Sophie that she was protecting her from early motherhood like her and from sex too early. She didn't want Mick Sophie's breasts to attract attention from boys or men who would want to have sex with her. Priscilla knew her daughter wouldn't complete her education if she became pregnant early and she was desperate for her to have a good future. The trust she'd known so fiercely was being broken by the very person that taught her about care 
about love and about trust. Mick Sophie tried to struggle free, but her mother began, quote, stroking the breasts flat with a wooden pestle. She heated it over coals and pushed down as hard as she could. It was better this way. She wasn't taking Mick Sophie to a doctor, who may use a knife to cut the breast open and then try to remove the insides. Mick Sophie knew that this was for her own good and that her mother was only trying to protect her, but she struggled to stifle her screams because of the intense pain. None of this felt right. After the hours and hours of traumatic and horrifically painful crushing of her breasts, Mick Sophie's chest was wrapped tightly in a bandage to further restrict growth, and for the next few years, this process was repeated. She was incredibly traumatised, both physically and mentally, but she knew that if this stopped men from wanting to have sex with her, then it would be worth it. Men were allowed to take what they wanted, and it was expected. This so-called breast ironing or breast sweeping was a way to ensure Mick Sophie wouldn't be made to have sex before she was older. However, tragically, one afternoon when Mick Sophie was just 13, she was alone with one of her uncles when he decided to rape her. She was distraught when the realisation hit her. The painful breast ironing that she had so courageously taken was for no reason. The ultimate goal of breast ironing is to stop the breasts from growing, or at the very least look disfigured. The idea being that unattractive breasts or unattractive girls will not be sexually assaulted. This is of course ineffective as is apparent in Mick Sophie's story. And there are many other examples of young girls seeking refuge with family members, fleeing after their first breast ironing session, only to be raped by men they barely know, or often, family members. There are many different methods of breast ironing, sometimes called breast flattening, each of which differs dependent on family tradition. Most of the objects used tend to belong to either their mothers or grandmothers. Some of the most common include pushing the breasts down with an extremely hot spatula, wooden pestle, a stone, coconut shells or a hammer before forcefully massaging them up to three times a day. Others are bound with elastic bands or pounded with heavy stones. Often with the tight elastic bandages, the mothers tighten them at night, sometimes during the day too. And with the heating technique, the assumption is that heating these tools and pressing them on girls will melt the fat, which is completely inaccurate. After the breast tissue is destroyed, the breasts become a mass of fat which lack any muscle or shape. This can lead to a number of complications, including infections, cysts, abscesses, 
and even breast cancer. If the stones are too hot and the process is quick, it can result in burning and actually lead to oversized breasts. Records of breast ironing date back to the 1930s and is associated with urbanisation, where social interaction can no longer be policed by mothers and grandmothers. As girls started going to school and spending more time outside of the house, there was more chance for premarital sex, often resulting in early pregnancy. The increased use of breast ironing over the late 90s and early 2000s is linked to early onset of puberty due to general dietary improvements in Cameroon. As well as this, there has been a moral panic in Cameroon because of the emergence of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Medical anthropologist Gambak Vichawi's Pamunta's research into breast ironing is vast. He says that the practice differs in the different regions in Cameroon. There is a lower rate of breast ironing in the north, which can be linked to the Islamic dress code of Muslims, which conceals the whole body. Whereas there is a higher rate amongst Christians and animists. There is also a higher rate of education in the north for older girls and in turn their families. And it has been proven time and time again that rates of teenage pregnancy fall when education quality is improved. When education isn't given to girls and their families, oftentimes the victims of breast ironing themselves truly believe that it is an honourable, useful and protective practice. 67-year-old Mami Ada said, quote, This is a tradition that my mother did on my breasts to prevent them from coming out so that men should not spoil me. Her own mother did it on her because she loved her. I will also do it on the breasts of all my granddaughters for their own good. Sex is as sweet as sugar and children of today are enjoying it at very early age. It has now become a poison thing with this disease they call AIDS. Breast ironing will make it possible for girl children not to become pregnant now that men are sleeping with their own daughters, children the age of their daughters, with no shame and children are also engaging in sex among themselves. Even teachers are sleeping with pupils. Unquote. It was suggested in a study conducted in 2007 that because of social norms in Cameroon, many women lack control over their sexual and reproductive rights. Discussion and education about sex are culturally taboo and contraceptives are socially ostracised. This means that often there is great appeal in underdevelopment of the breasts. If the girls haven't reached puberty yet, they will have more chance of holding off in sexual engagement for a little while longer. Cameroon continues to be a fiercely conservative nation and mothers continue to use breast ironing as a form of contraception. If their child gets pregnant outside of marriage, they're looked down on 
and banishment or in some cases extreme hate crimes happen. Abortion is extremely restricted, so not an option for an accidental pregnancy. There are obviously serious health issues that arise from the practice. Aside from the fact that it is an extremely painful practice, the sessions can also result in tissue damage and many experts believe that it can cause issues with breastfeeding later in life. And even if a woman is able to breastfeed, it's thought that the scars from the injuries may cause milk infection. However, because of the fairly recent and accidental discovery of the tradition, due to a study conducted that unveiled this practice, there is little evidence and therefore no solid medical studies as to the effects. There is also suggestion of increased risk of depression, and many girls develop fear of sexual activity for the rest of their lives. The numbers of victims are scary, especially given the small number of countries that breast ironing is recognised in. In 2018, it was found that approximately 3.8 million girls from all over the world have experienced breast ironing. This number is much lower than the reality, and the practice is not confined to Cameroon. There have been many reported cases in the UK. In Cameroon, the issue of child rights violation is extreme. It's reported that 8% of children are married before their 18th birthdays, with over 25% of adolescent girls becoming mothers, and a long history of FGM. FGM is a procedure where, for no medical reason, the genitals are deliberately cut or injured in order to be changed. The practice is also known as female circumcision. It usually happens to girls anywhere from infancy to the age of 15. However, it's most commonly done before puberty starts. It's an incredibly painful and serious harm to the health of women and girls, and it often causes long-term problems with mental health, sex and childbirth. Mick Sophie became a mother when she turned 29. She gave birth to a baby girl called Grace. She takes on many Cameroon traditions with her daughter. She keeps her close. She sleeps in the same bed and breastfeeds when she can. Although she knows that breast ironing is a tradition she won't ever subject Grace to, who turns nine this year the same age that Mick Sophie was when she started growing breasts. Mick Sophie now uses her experience to spread awareness and help those who have been through the same things. The two live with Priscilla in the family home. Mick Sophie said, quote, Breast ironing hurts more than childbirth, unquote. Her mother now deeply regrets what she did when her daughter was a child. Quote, Mick Sophie started developing breasts very early and she was becoming attractive. I wanted to guard her childhood 
and protect her from men. I meant well. I asked for forgiveness for what I thought was wisdom but turned out to be ignorance. Unquote. Mick Sophie forgives her mother but says that she'll never forget. Another breast-dining victim, Julina Jessa, runs weekly classes aiming to educate girls and their families on the traumas and harm of breast-dining. She acknowledges the practice has steeply declined since its accidental discovery back in 2005, but says it is still happening an awful lot, and usually by those who genuinely love and care for the victim. There's no question about the brutality of the act of breast-dining, but the question over who is responsible is a little more complex. The criminalisation of breast-dining could certainly act as a deterrent, but in reality, much more is needed to completely stop the practice. This comes down to a number of elements, one of which is the challenge of stereotypical gender roles and certain cultural traditions that encourage violence against women. Much like female genital mutilation, these practices are so firmly rooted in tradition and culture. Open conversations are just not something that people want to, or in some cases are able to, engage in. The societal norms of Cameroon tell women that they don't have a right to say no to men, and in turn, any negatively perceived fallout of a man's actions such as young pregnancy, are not his fault and actually fall wholly to the woman. As well as this, investment and effort from the state are essential in order to educate people as to the harmful effects. By making women who practice breast ironing aware that they are violating children's rights, they are then able to make informed decisions as to whether or not they inflict pain and distress onto their own children. Most incidents of breast dining are done by mothers, sisters or aunties and they truly think that they have the child's best interests at heart. They see it as a form of protection and are following social norms. The difficulty in change and the reason it has not been immediately stopped is down to Cameroon's reaction and action. The only way this will happen is if the government takes responsibility. Change can only take place when outside influences are introduced to the ingrained home culture. And this can only happen with solid investment and ownership from the Cameroon government. The responsibility for the millions of girls affected by this abuse lies with them. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound designed by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.